0: Today we'll look at the long history of Latino presence in the Midwest, the changing demographics of our region, and some of the ways in which Latino culture is shared with and enjoyed by non-Latinos in our region and around the world. We have an exceptional group of guests here to flesh out this very broad and interesting topic. We'll be discussing the history, education, literature, art, politics, and food of Latinos in the Midwest, and we're going to begin the program in a most wonderful way with music. Guitarist and singer Eugenio Solis, formerly of Solis and Solis, also a member of the mariachi band De Colores, is here to perform for us. Eugenio Solis was born in Sombrerete in the state of Zacatecas, Mexico. He's a self-taught musician, but he grew up hearing his grandfather play violin for local dances. He's been playing with a variety of bands since the age of 17, performing rock and roll and country music, Mexican folk songs, and virtually any kind of music in restaurants and clubs in Juarez. Uh, also in El Paso and other cities before moving to West Liberty here in Iowa in 1991, and he's been playing regularly in West Liberty since 1994. So please welcome Eugenio Solis. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so, much. so it's so lovely to have you here. We're very much looking forward to hearing your your music. Um, so we heard a little bit about where you're from and the fact that you've lived here now in Iowa for quite a long time. But when you were growing up and living in juarez you made your living as a guitarist playing music
1: mm, yes most of all uh, not guitarist just a no. uh, band player oh
0: yeah yes. yeah and <laughs> that's why th-
1: that you mentioned rock and roll bands yeah
0: oh really oh <laughs> oh so was it electric guitar or electric other kinds guitar. of oh yes. really wow
1: it was i play electric guitar uh bass guitar too
0: yeah, really. Yeah. Oh, and you didn't bring either um, of those with you tonight, no? <laughs> no. Uh,
1: for a while, about a year, maybe a year on something. I've been playing drums too, so. Oh, really? Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, and so now that you're here in Iowa, uh, do you play quite often?
1: Well, not too often, but uh, mm-hmm. once in a while. Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. And what kinds of songs are you going to play for us today? Uh,
1: there is, uh, Song from Spain, and Aguapango, and Caino bolero. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: So how did you pick up the guitar? Uh, Who taught you?
1: Uh, Tell me again?
0: Who taught you how to play guitar? How did you learn this instrument?
1: Mm, I learned by myself. Really? I start picking up chords and notes by myself, Mm -hmm. by ear, mostly. Mm -hmm. So with the run of the time, I start looking for, learn some right music.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I didn't learn, but I know a little bit. Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah. And these songs that you're going to play today, um, are they special for you? Do you especially love them? Not
1: really, something that I have in my, uh, Repertory, yeah. so it's uh, yeah. nothing special. You know what, I don't have any, any kind of song that can be special for me. Mm-hmm. I just play songs, just play. And sing songs, <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and that's it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: oh, that's a lot. Uh, so um, I know that at least the first songs you're going to uh, play and sing, you'll be doing in Spanish, right?
1: It is in Spanish, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I used to sing in English before, but uh, I never, I never, knew what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, now, some <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> of us who don't speak
0: Spanish will be in that situation now when we hear you sing, but I know that we'll enjoy them just the same. Uh, would you like to introduce the first song in some way? Oh, yeah.
1: This is a song from Spain. The composer is uh, Camilo Sesto or Camilo Blanes. And this, the name of the song is Que Masteda.
3: Recuerda que aunque te vayas no eres libre Nos ata nuestro pasado y algún papel No me olvidarás tan fácilmente Antes de irte, piénsalo bien Me tienes en un nudo el corazón No sé si tengo yo la culpa o la razón Lo que sé es que te quiero, que te quiero ¿Qué más puedo ofrecerte para retenerte? ¿Qué más te da? Regálame tu amor una vez más ¿Qué más te da? Regálame una noche que no olvide jamás ¿Qué más te da? regálame un beso al despertar, ¿qué más te da? ¿qué más te da? ¿qué más te da? En el amor siempre hay aciertos y hay errores En la pareja siempre hay uno que se queja Y en vez de salvar problemas nos empeñamos En hacernos daño y tratarnos como extraños Estoy perdiendo la cabeza pensando En que me equivoqué, como y cuando Y cada tres palabras digo tu nombre Y es que te amo tanto, no imaginas cuánto. ¿Qué más te da? Regálame tu amor una vez más. ¿Qué más te da? Regálame una noche que no olvide jamás. ¿Qué más te da? Regálame un beso al despertar. ¿Qué más te da? ¿Qué más te da? ¿Qué más te da? ¿Qué más te da? Regálame tu amor una vez más. ¿Qué más te da? Regálame una noche que no olvide jamás. ¿Qué más te da? Regálame un beso al despertar. ¿Qué más te da? ¿Qué más te da?
1: Muchas gracias. Gracias.
0: So I guess every culture has love songs and uh, broken-hearted songs and so on. Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What's your favorite sort of song to sing? Any kind. Any kind. Like I told you before, I don't have any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I I remember in uh, the introduction we gave of you, uh, your grandfather played violin. Were you surrounded by a lot of music when you were growing up?
1: Well, not really. My grandfather used to play violin for dancers, the dancers that we call matachines. Mm-hmm. There is a, a religious dance. So they used to dance in the church every, for example, the uh, Virgin of Guadalupe Day, yes. and something like that. But, but that was the kind. So it wasn't really music. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. a uh, they call sones for, oh. for for the dancers.
0: Sure. <coughs> <Yeah>. mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. Um, so, what's the
1: next piece you're going to play? The next piece is a uh, kind of bolero. The name is irresistible, and it talks about ah. Uh, uh, this man, see an angel and and uh person that he is trying to be in love with, yeah. so. <laughs> Something like that. Okay, great.
0: (laughs) So for anyone who's just joined us, you're listening to Eugenio Solis.
3: Desde el cielo he recibido la noticia de que un ángel se ha escapado sin querer y que anda perdido por la tierra. Lo que tienes es que se viste de mujer. Yo conozco una criatura que yo he visto y que cada vez que yo la puedo ver, me parece que estoy mirando a un ángel, el ángel de mi querer. Pero yo no soy más que un infeliz, que no puedo más que decirte así. Dios te guarde, criatura irresistible. Dios te bendiga. El consuelo que me queda es que he podido ver de cerca la más hermosa mujer, la criatura más linda que yo he visto, la figura más henchida de placer. Es tan rara, tan sencilla y tan hermosa como la más linda rosa de un vergel, que me muera si al verla yo no ¡Ay, qué preciosa mujer! Pero yo no soy más que un infeliz, que no puedo más que decirte así. Dios te guarde, criatura irresistible, Dios te bendiga, mujer. Dios te guarde, criatura irresistible, Dios te bendiga, mujer. Gracias. gracias
0: So you told me before we started the program that you had lived for most of your, your life. You'd grown up in uh, Ciudad Juarez and. Yes, uh, uh,
1: the whole life until I was 44, 46 that I yeah. got
0: here. Yeah. Why did you come to Iowa?
1: Why did I come to Iowa? Good question. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> well, there is exists a problem in in Mexico f- with the uh, musicians. Uh, when they get to the age of forty, it's it's uh, almost impossible to get uh, somebody to play with Oh. Most of all, uh, the bands mm-hmm. doesn't like t- to have mm-hmm. old people. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. mostly, uh, I start thinking, well, I'm gonna need a job. And around, I've been placing uh, appointments. I mean, yes, and all El Paso, yes. all yes. the holes the the wide city, yeah. and they never call me hmm. when I start having troubles to, to work in the music. So, then a friend of mine invited me to Iowa.
2: Mm-hmm. I said, Why not? Yeah.
1: <laughs> if I if I <laughs> cannot find anything right here, so yeah. maybe. There. And yes, uh, thanks God, I got here and uh, mm-hmm. I start working right away. So.
0: Yeah. <laughs> wonderful. And you've been here now for almost 20 years.
1: Yes, yeah. I think already or 20 right years. 20, yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Has have you been? happy in your time in Iowa? Is it a good place for you to have lived?
2: Mm, Yes. Yeah? Yeah.
0: Well, you don't have to say yes. You can even say no. (laughs) (laughs) But but yeah. Well, I know you have another song for us. What's this next one?
1: Uh, The next one is, like you say, about uh, a a prisoner. Uh, I think the name of the song is The Prisoner Number 9 in English. El Preso Numero Nueve en Español. So, El Preso Numero Nueve, eh, he's in prison because he killed a friend of him that he find with, uh, found with, found with his, I don't know, wife, maybe, just uh, yeah, girlfriend, yeah. I don't yeah. know, something like that. But mm-hmm. He killed both, Mm. so he he went to prison for that. Okay,
3: el preso número nueve. lo van a confesar está rezando en la celda con el cura del penal porque antes de amanecer la vida le han de quitar porque mató a su mujer y a un amigo desleal dice así al confesor los maté sí señor y si vuelvo a nacer yo los voy a matar Padre no me arrepiento Ni me da miedo la eternidad Yo sé que allí en el cielo El ser supremo me ha de juzgar Voy a seguir sus pasos Voy a buscar los almas allá Número 9 era un hombre muy cabal. Iba la noche del duelo muy contento a su jacal, pero al mirar a su amor en brazos de su rival, sintió en su pecho el rencor y no se pudo aguantar. Al sonar, Clarín Se formó El Pelotón Y rumbo Al Paredón Se oyó al Preso Decir Padre no me arrepiento Ni me da miedo La eternidad Yo sé que allí en el cielo el Ser Supremo me ha de juzgar. Voy a seguir sus pasos, voy a buscar los almas allá. Gracias.
1: Gracias.
0: You have a great voice, and, and you Thank play you. guitar wonderfully. It's just a <laughs> treat to hear you. Um, I know we're coming to the end of the segment, but would you like to sing one more song? You said you had one in English that you might uh, well, sing as I, well.
1: I'm not a good sing, singer. I mean, I don't sing very well in English. Most of all, my my accent and pronunciation, I think, mm. uh, maybe. You think not. you'd rather not? I can try. Okay, please do. <laughs> 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 This is a song that was recorded by by, uh, the men of those people. Well, BGs were not (laughs)
3: there's a light, a certain kind of light. Never shone on me. I want my life to live, to live with you, live with you. There's a way. Everybody say to do each and every little thing. I see your face again I know my frame of mind You ain't got to be so blind And I'm blind So, so, very blind I'm a man Can you see what I am? I live in red for you But what good does it do If I ain't got you Ain't got Baby, you don't know what it's like Baby, you don't know what it's like To love somebody Love somebody the way I love you. Yeah, you don't know what is like, baby. You don't know what is like to love somebody, to love somebody the way I love you. Gracias, gracias. Now in English, thank you.
0: (laughs) So once again, let me say into the microphone here, Eugenio Solis has been our guest. We're so grateful to have you here. Thank you for starting off our program. So another hand, please, for Mr. Solis, thank (laughs) you.
3: Thank you, thank you so much.
0: So I will invite our next guests to come up and join us, and they will be Gabriello and uh, Diego Rivera and uh, Santiago. Please come up as well. In this next segment, we'll talk with our guests about life in Iowa for Latino residents, uh, the very individual and personal experience of being Latino in a state with relatively little ethnic diversity. Uh, I'll start the introductions here as our guests come up. Gabriela Rivera is a program specialist at the University of Iowa Center for Diversity and Enrichment and co-director of West Liberty Enrichment Program, focusing on teaching literacy to immigrant parents and their children. And uh, she was born in Mexico and moved from Mexico City to Davenport in 1988, uh, receiving her MA in Student Development in Post-Secondary Education from the University of Iowa. She's uh, worked in many uh, different areas including admissions counselor and paralegal, Spanish teacher, And, as we said earlier, is uh, currently a program specialist at the Center for Diversity and Enrichment. So thank you for being here with us, Gabriella.
4: Thank you very much. I'm very delighted.
0: Good. And uh, Diego Rivera, just next to Gabriela, is co-owner of El Sol Restaurant in uh, Solon, Iowa. He was born in Monterrey, Mexico, and migrated to the U.S. in 1988, has been in the restaurant business for six years, and has owned five restaurants, and currently owns two. Uh, They're both in small rural communities in Solon and Mount Vernon, uh, communities that you tell me have uh, either no Latinos or have fewer than about 1%, and he currently has 14 full-time employees. Thank you, Diego, for joining us. I know it's a busy night for the restaurant business, so we appreciate (laughs) your, your taking your time to come here. And Santiago Vaquera Vasquez is a University of Iowa assistant professor of Spanish and Portuguese, specializing in Chicano or Chicana and uh, Mexican literatures and cultures. He's also a writer and has published stories in international literary journals, as well as in major anthologies on contemporary literature in the Americas. So welcome to all of you. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit later in more detail about Midwestern Latino history and specific demographic trends and so on on a kind of a macro level, but I I thought we'd take these next few minutes to talk with you, sort of as we did with Eugenio there, about what the experience has been for you living in Iowa, having come from um, Mexico and getting, you know, settled here in the Midwest uh, some years ago now. So, um, Gabriela, let me just turn to you first and ask you something about your experience here.
4: Yeah, it actually be um, 25 years this month on October 17. So I keep that day very present in my mind. Um, I was actually um, texting my mom a few minutes earlier to make sure that she was listening to the radio show. (laughs)
2: Because
4: without um, uh, my parents' help, uh, it would not be possible for us to be here either because they're currently watching our three kids. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, having, um, being a a full-time working mom and um, being committed to uh, my, Responsibilities outside work is very important to me, but I can only do it with the support of my family, and Mm. that's my mother and my stepfather, and who can help. And so, I'm very uh, fortunate to have that support system of having close family around this area.
0: Yeah, yeah. And when did your family, your relatives, first come to Iowa? Have some of them been here for much, much longer than?
4: Your yeah, own um, we're new immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, my first uh, relative who had settled in Iowa, in Davenport, Iowa, uh, came in 1970, and that's my um, maternal aunt uh, Sylvia Lisman mm-hmm. in Davenport, Iowa. And thank you to her, everybody follow, <laughs> <laughs> and she opened the door to everyone to come to Iowa, and mostly uh, Davenport and Iowa City. Mm-hmm. And from here, there's been relatives who have moved away to other states, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fortunate to uh, have
0: settled in Iowa City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I'll bring Diego in at, at this time too, because as I understand it, you came here actually in the same year that Gabriela did. Did you two know each other at the time, or did you meet after, after you'd both been in Iowa for a while? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's you younger meet? than me.
4: <laughs> 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 but came the same year. Not much. <laughs> uh,
5: yeah, I also came in 1988. My dad migrated here in uh, 1987, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, we came in here after him.
0: Yeah, and how did your family decide to come to Iowa? What What was it that brought you to this state as opposed to any other?
5: Um, I have an uncle that that lives in Davenport, and he had a, a roofing company, and um, so it was my dad's brother, so mm-hmm. my dad came to work with him.
0: Yeah, yeah, great, mm-hmm. great. Yes. Uh-huh. And so do you both live in Iowa City now, or are you? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, I know we're going to be talking about your restaurant business a little bit more later and about your work here at the mm-hmm. university later. So I'm going to move down to Santiago, and uh, thanks for being here, Santiago. Thanks. Um, and you have lived in Iowa now for some years, but you actually lived longer in the southwestern part of the states, yes. right?
6: Yes. I've actually, I was, I was born in California. My, uh, my parents crossed the border a few months before I was born, so I often say that I was... Uh, made in Mexico, born in the USA. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I grew up in a small rural town in Northern California, kind of, I'd say it's not, not that different from say West Liberty. And so uh, I often tell my students that I was, um, I, up until I was around five, I was, I was actually, I was born a Mexican in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I grew up within a Mexicano community. And so Spanish was my first language. I didn't learn English until I started school. And, I, and then I became a Mexican American in that process, but so as a child, right, I grew up uh, going to, to fiestas and, uh, and living almost pretty much entirely in sort of a Spanish mm-hmm. uh, or Mexicano community.
0: hmm mm-hmm. Now, was there a similar situation for, for you folks, or now that you're raising your children, I guess they probably have a very wide exposure both to your Mexican heritage and then to all their American friends who mm-hmm. don't have a Latino background. Did did you Diego when you came here, were you sort of, did you find your way into uh, Latino community or did you feel that you had landed right in the middle of a very, uh, you know, white and non-Latino Iowa?
5: Well, I'm gonna have to say that uh, when I came here, I I don't know I had I had this my mindset that I wanted to learn English, and uh, out of my three brothers, I was I was the first one to. Like, I, I think I spent six months in ESL courses and then I would move on to the regular ones because, mm-hmm. like, I came here and I didn't talk to people in Spanish. I, I, I didn't watch TV in Spanish, I didn't listen to music. I, I kind of abandoned my culture, mm-hmm. for, I kind of put it on hold, and I said, you know, I came to this country, I'm going to learn it, and I'm going to become part of it, and mm-hmm. then, I don't know, I. I think I, I got more into the Mexican culture now that I'm in the restaurant business <laughs> and I, my wife would agree with me because I would always listen to music in English and stuff like that oh, yeah. but, and I would only hang out with more. I had more Anglo friends, you know, yeah. and really not that many Spanish-speaking friends, you know. but now that I, I have my employees and you know, my mm. wife, listen to me, and I listen to Wanda, and I listen to this and that. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it's, it's it, it, my wife's like, you, you have become so Mexican. You know? and, <laughs> and it's like, you know, I am. You know, and like sometimes I'll take my kids to school, uh-huh. you know, and they'll be like, dad, dad, turn down your music, just turn it down. I want you <laughs> to you know, to hear your music. It's not even loud just turn it off, you know. Why you drop us yeah. off, you know. So, yeah, you know, I have, I, I think I, I, it was pretty easy for me. I mean, I was 11 years old, was pretty easy for me to adapt, you know. Uh, uh, my my older brothers had more trouble with that, but mm-hmm. to me, it was a pretty easy, smooth transition.
0: Right, and now with your kids, now do you, uh, do you teach them Spanish? For example, are they are they bilingual? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I totally believe that um, learning
4: Spanish at a young age is very important because I used to teach Spanish at a Montessori school to three, four, and five years old, and Um, I'm convinced that that's the best age to teach a a kid a foreign language and so for us it's very important and uh, at home I'm I'm like again I'm fortunate that I have adults that can speak Spanish to my kids every day. Um, Lots of my family um, relatives are older women who uh, prefer Spanish. They learn English but Mm -hmm. prefer Spanish so it is very important Mm -hmm. and um, and I, I, I just feel that Culture is very important um, part of anyone's identity, mm-hmm. and I mean that's what I do every day in my job. I talk mm-hmm. about a students' identities, whether that's their culture, their gender, mm-hmm. their sexual orientation. So I'm not gonna, you know, it's something I do at home. It's something I do at work. So it's just part of me. Sure. And um, and yeah, with my kids, yeah, it is a challenge because. Um, you know, they get all kind of messages outside the house uh, about yeah. if it's right or not, or if, if it's okay or cool or not. But um, I noticed that we actually live in Coralville, and my kids go to K. um elementary school, and my 11 and my 6-year-old um, kids, um, they're in um, very much more diverse uh, classrooms where their kids are, parents are, from other countries, Mm -hmm. um, just like them. And so they have noticed that, they have noticed that their friend, you know, parents speak Korean or Hindi or Japanese or Spanish. And so it's okay, you know, Mm -hmm. everybody else at home has a parent that probably came from another country Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, they're being taught in a a second or third or fourth language, you know? So I think that my kids, really embrace it. Um, I mean, we're not fortunate to be in a dual language uh, educational system mm-hmm. here in Iowa City like they do in West Liberty. But, you know, that's our job then mm-hmm. at home to make mm-hmm. sure that they're reading Spanish and that they watch Spanish television. And you know, yeah. it's very different than for us because just like Diego, I was 17 when I came here. So learning English had to happen very quickly for me, especially if I wanted to graduate from high school in one year, I can when I was a senior and then going to college and then taking ESL for one more year at the community college. Um, so, but I love the English language, so I'm always very conscious of um, making sure I write and speak well because that's very important, especially when you're in a professional job. Um, and in Spanish too, in in Mexico, we have a saying that says it says you're very well educated, um, bien educado, and it not only means that you're being uh, well educated in a formal setting, but you have good manners. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even if you don't have the opportunity of um, going through formal education in a classroom, that the fact that your parents teach you good manners, mm-hmm. it's even more important. So yeah. I think yeah. that's very, very important to
0: teach to our kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, Santiago, so, so you grew up really very much in a Mexican uh, community in California. And mm-hmm. then, am I correct in thinking you lived in the Southwest? I did.
6: I you? did. I uh-huh. did, I, um, I, uh, did my, uh, my graduate work in, uh, in Southern California, in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, I, after I finished my Ph.D., I went to teach. Uh, at Texas A&M, so I was living in Texas for a number of oh, yeah. years, yeah. and uh, that's when I started what I often refer to as my period of exile from California or <laughs> Mexile. And uh, I uh, afterwards I, I taught at Penn State before coming here. Oh, and yeah. one of the uh, one of the reasons why uh, Iowa seemed so attractive to me, at least in, in at least professionally, was because when uh, when I was in the process of being hired, we were talking about building an uh, an MFA. In creative writing in Spanish, mm-hmm. and uh, at the time there, there was only one other program in the, in the U.S. and that yeah. was at, at uh, University of Texas El Paso. Uh, uh, now we are the third. The second one started at um, at uh, at NYU, uh, uh, and we've we, we just started. And one of the sort of the odd things that that has happened in my life, uh, at least odd to other people but not to me, is the fact that as a as a Chicano growing up in California. Uh, I uh, and as a writer, I write in Spanish, and that's a, something that um, is often found uh, surprising by by other other writers, especially Latin American writers, because they wonder because we often think that um, the Chicano writing is now in English, mm-hmm. but there is a um, there is a generation of Chicano of authors from the '60s through the early '70s who were writing in writing in Spanish, and and it just so happened that, that I just started working in Spanish for. It's a very long story though, that I won't get into, but uh, it's something that I've that I've I've kept at, mm-hmm. and uh, and so coming coming to Iowa, and with the possibility of, of working in a uh, in an MFA in Spanish, uh, my hope is that then that we can start looking um, at a, a, or attracting other Latino students who grew up similar to me, right? So grew mm-hmm. up in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, grew up in a bilingual households, and 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 who want to write and and think that you know that. Or, or, or who want to who think that they can use Spanish in a creative way, mm-hmm. and so hopefully we can we can start also attracting students to um, to to the um, to to our MFA. Of course, we have the workshop, which is a fantastic mm-hmm. program, and if, we've had a number of important Chicano and Latino authors who've come out of out of here, um, including of course on the Cisneros, uh, Oscar Casares, uh, in Texas, um, uh, Daniela Larcon, right. So uh, hopefully. As, the, as our program grows, mm-hmm. we can start attracting and bringing back mm-hmm. a, Spanish as a, um, as a creative language for, for U.S. born Latinos, which I think would be would be it's, it's a fantastic opportunity.
0: Yeah, I think this is an amazing thing. That it was just a couple of years last year, even mm-hmm. when this was uh, made of sort of a formal yes. program. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How many students do you do you know roughly are involved in the Spanish creative We currently
6: have. Uh, I don't. I don't have the, the the exact number, but I'm I'm thinking around eight, nine, yeah. eight or nine. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it, we don't have any Latinos yet, but uh-huh. um, but it, that's it's it's hope that we'll we'll will 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 start attracting more. Sure.
0: In your own work, um, so you write in Spanish. Do you do do you do your own translations into English, or do, are they not translated? I, I
6: have. I have recently. I've been invited to participate in a number of um, at a number of events um, here. Most of my most of my events are are in, in, in Spain or in Mexico mm-hmm. or at, at, sometimes in South America. But so uh, when, I, when I come to the US, I often find myself having to s- self-translate. So a couple of weeks ago, I, uh, I did a reading at Prairie Lights and I, uh, I, I, I read a, um, a story that I had, I had translated of my own. But yet one of the things about self-translation is, is, is that I have a tendency, I feel like George Lucas doing Star Wars, right? I mean, I, I always wanna sort of change things and the and the translation then ends up becoming different from the uh, from the original. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, well, I know that you are you're raising a son as well, and mm-hmm. I take it he's probably also bilingual.
6: Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet. Um, he is is my nephew. Uh, my my sister, his mother passed away a couple of years ago, and she uh, didn't. Um, she wasn't really raising him in Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, and when he's come to live with me. Um, everybody, including my mom in particular, were like, well, you know, he has to learn Spanish. And of course, I, I agree. Uh, but it's, al- it's always very difficult uh, uh, to start, you know, when he's nine. And he's really fascinated by the language. And so he wants to, he, he, he self identifies as Mexican, mm-hmm. which I think is really cute, right? When he's, he's now 10, and he'll tell me that his sometimes, um, he, he, when he was living in Iowa, he's currently living in, um, in Albuquerque because I don't know if I've mentioned that I'm actually leaving at the end of the semester. Yeah. I'm I'm Terrible. moving to the University of New Mexico. But uh, uh, Jasper, my nephew, one day in the car says, you know, my friends don't understand who I am. And I said, well, well who are you? And he said, well, you know, I'm Mexican. I went, <laughs> really? <laughs> what does that mean? So, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. It's actually, yeah, it's actually really, it's a really, it's been a really, um, interesting and and, and and rewarding experience for, yeah. for me.
0: Wonderful, yeah. Well, uh, thanks for sharing some of your personal stories here. We'll we'll have uh, both Gabriela and Santiago up again in a minute. So thank you very much. And and uh, right now I'd like to invite Miriam to join us. And uh, so please thank these guests for what they've shared. Thank you. Um, Please just stay there. Yeah, so we are inviting now Miriam Alarcón-Avila to join us. She is a chef at New Pioneer Co-op, and she is also an artist, a visual artist, and a painter, and um, uh, very innovative in her artwork, which carries over into her work with food. And so, Miriam, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, and um, buenas noches. (laughs) Yes. Good night uh, (laughs) to everyone. Yeah. Um, So you and Diego are going to talk to us a little bit about food and um, introducing certain flavors and tastes uh, that maybe a little, um, what should I say, are are more truer perhaps to uh, the original taste of food from Mexico than some of what we've come to associate with Mexican food in the U.S. that's not, that has been sort of modified so much that you were telling me before there are certain spices that everyone seems to associate with Mexican food in most restaurants here in the States. And you say, we don't use that in Mexico. Real Mexicans <laughs> wouldn't make it that way. So um, so I wanted to talk to both of you about your experience here.
7: Well, is kind uh, of like a craziness in my life because I never considered myself a good cook. Um, my sister, she's a really good cook. Uh, I realized then later that because the way you grow in Mexico is completely different than how you grow here. Uh, we grow all, pretty much all around family. And um, we all always get together and cook food together. and. You go to the market three times a day, you go in the morning and buy the fresh bread and bolillos and conchas, all the sweet breads, and then um, get some tortillas. Everyone just get up early in the morning, sometimes like 4 a.m. in the morning (laughs) or 5 a.m. in the morning, people is making light to buy fresh tortillas and um, go to the market where you can see all these beautiful, colorful fruit and uh, produce that you never see here. So when I came over here, I saw to the market, well, to the grocery store, is really no market. Fresh farmers markets will be the more near too, but it's not really, you can't compar- that, compare that. And then I go to the grocery store and it's like, oh my God, it's like w- where I can find my nopales or where the tortillas are, it's like nothing. And um, I love cooking one one of my favorite um, herbs to use is epazote. And um, <laughs> epazote is a really, is an herb, and it's, it's pretty much grow like a, like a wild herb, mm-hmm. like no one's wanted in the gardens. But it's my favorite um, herb to use. And when I come over here, it's like, where is the epazote? And it's like, what is that? Oh, is it Mexican food? No, 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 that is not a spice for Mexican food. I can find it anywhere, yeah. fortunately, I have a friend who is from Mexico. He brings some uh, seeds there, and he grow it. He started to grow in his garden, and he passed me uh, some plants five years ago. At that time, I didn't have a garden, so I'd give it to a friend. i planted it in his garden, <laughs> and then later that, I finally want to have my own garden. I pass it from my epazote to my own garden. So now <laughs> I have my epazote at home, so I can cook all the time with it. <laughs> Uh, so I realized that the food over here is like really completely different from where I, I, I grew up. And I, I totally remember I was eight years old, seven years old, and it's like, you have to get up early, go to the market, uh, buy the food, and just start to cook for the, for the family because everyone is working, everyone is busy. You just got to help as a part of the family. So then when I came over here, I realized... I was a pretty good cook, and actually I love baking. I think I am more a better baker than a cook that Mm -hmm. makes food. Mm -hmm. Um, I love baking. I just love the way how the chemistry works in the food. Mm -hmm. So I used to do a lot of the baking in Mexico as a voluntary job. I learned a lot, and when I came over here, I actually was just crazy because I never thought I was going to be doing food. I come in here to pursue school and education through art, which is what I really want to do. Uh, But I realized that I'm a good cook, and a fine new painter cook, which I love. It was the more near to my Mexican all-natural food. So that is what I just start to work over there, and um, start to develop a lot of the new recipes, and just to start to learning all the process, when I when I get higher, it's like I didn't speak any English at all,
2: mm-hmm.
7: at all. It mm-hmm. is like, I can understand that because it is incredible see how when you have the need, you are open, like all your senses are completely open and you can read not just words, you can read of the visual movement of the people, how they express themselves, how they move it. So you have a sense the word they are saying, mm-hmm. but it's not clear. Mm-hmm. I just remember I keep saying yes, yes <laughs> to everything, and mm-hmm. I get a job. And I remember I have to start to bake. Like they told me, you gotta be there. My my second day of work is like, you gotta be there four a.m. in the morning and bake scones and muffins. And I say, God, I know how to do that. I have experience. I it's that is okay. Um, so just. Get up there and start to make this. And then when I see the recipes, they are all in English. And I say, I can do this. I can mm-hmm. do this. <laughs> I did it. And I keep growing in and learning. And uh, I really believe in the in the mission of New Pioneer Cup. It's one of the more important things for me because I think everyone uh, has the need to. Put good food in yourself it's like um, be part of this earth through food. We are all growing together, and when you end up eating all these uh, artificial flavors, preserves, and everything, uh, it's just adding so much unnatural chemicals to your body they it just don't belong to mm-hmm. so. I love work there, mm-hmm. and right now yeah. I'm just developing new recipes, and um, it's funny because a lot of people, I work in town, and it's like, oh, you make, the, my, my, you make my, my son's birthday cake. <laughs> I stop, thank you, yeah. And then I, I make wedding cakes. Oh, gosh, it's one of my, the more beautiful things I love to do, and then it's just like really beautiful to go a, a place. And, Oh my gosh! You make them more beautiful, K. For us, thank you so much. You make (laughs) these our dreams come true. So it's really satisfying to to Mm -hmm. realize that you can touch people through your food.
0: Yeah. Oh, th- th- thank you, and and we'll have more to talk about certain okay. sp- special <laughs> things in, in just a sec. So no. now, Diego, let me turn to you and ask you something <laughs> about you know starting your restaurants, and, and you've you've you're obviously successful at this, and um, mm. but restaurants are such a tricky business. More restaurants <laughs> seem to fail than almost any other kind of new business. What is the little niche you've been able to find and and uh, you know find success in?
5: Mm, well, like. I haven't been successful in everything. Well, uh, it's just um, in Mexico. They have a saying that screwing things up, you learn screwing things yeah, up. Sure. You know, and like I said, I opened my first restaurant in in 06, and then uh, you know I was learning and mm-hmm, screwing things mm-hmm. up, and then we were thinking of a way of erasing things. So we got the flood. so.
0: Oh my gosh! Yeah. Um,
5: oh. <clears throat> so then after that, we opened another restaurant downtown, and. Um it wasn't it was it wasn't really my thing working with students because mm-hmm. they would tear things up. Mm-hmm. So then we opened one up uh, uh, in, uh <laughs> in uh in uh in Tiffin, opened one up and, and that went well. Mm-hmm. Then she was my customer. Ah-ha. I <laughs> love
7: his not there any longer. <laughs>
5: so then I I sold that mm-hmm. and I opened up a restaurant in, in Solon.
2: Yeah.
5: And I, I I've been searching for this thing. It's like, what is it that I need to do? Well, first I need to go where there wasn't any other Mexican restaurant.
2: Right, right, <laughs> right.
5: Because then they can, they have to put up with it no matter <laughs> what. Yeah, <you know? laughs> we <laughs> had people. They take advantage because they're the only Mexican restaurant. Yeah. You know, but I think that was one of the things. You know, and then um, we opened one up in uh, uh, in Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. So I I think one of the things that that I have been told that has made it made us so successful is that personal touch that we haven't lost it. That mm-hmm. people walk in, and say, how are you doing? You know, and we get to know them. Yeah. We get to know them by first first name. You know, we we try to keep it small and simple, and you know, we're always trying to learn things and trying to change things around. You know, I. You know, a lot of times people will make a menu and they'll keep it the same. You know, for twenty years yeah. or whatever. You know, I make my menu and and it's and it's really weird because a lot of times a lot of times you think, wow, well, you know, there's people come and they say, oh, is it authentic or is it not? You know, when I opened my first restaurant, uh, the guy that was my my business partner, I said, whatever we do, we're not gonna make chimichangas, all right? Oh. <laughs> but you know what? That's this right. is like the biggest selling thing we have. <laughs> you know, so so nowadays. Um, I think it was on Tuesday. Uh I was just talking to the guy that's my business partner right now, and he's also the cook. And I said, you know what, I think we need to, if we're gonna sell chimichangas, we need to come up with the best chimichangas because everybody makes chimichangas. And I said, and a lot of people say, oh, you have the best. But if you really think about it, uh, in a way it's the same thing that other people have Mm -hmm. in certain things. You know, We have some, some things that do stand out you know, but maybe, you know, about 15% of our menu. But then mm-hmm. I thought, we need to get a hold of a chef or some. Got to get your phone number. <laughs> Got um, to get a hold of a chef and see if we can come up with a good sauce, cheese sauce for the chimichanga. Yeah. You know, and and I always try to educate myself a little more about the sauces and about what's, you know, I went to Ryan Hart Food's uh, uh, food fair, and I said, you know, I want to go, and I want you to teach me how, you know, I know, I was from Monterrey and we we're known for grilling steaks, but probably not the best steaks. But <laughs> I said, I want to go and I want to learn. I, please show me. They have chefs there that show us how to, you know, grill the steak. Don't flip it over those Do that, you know? You get to get the juice out and stuff like that. And I'm always trying to learn a little more, you know? And I think, and I always go and I ask my customers, I say, how was everything, you know? And I always keep, and I go asking, and I keep asking, and I think, you know, I'd rather them tell me. And I said, please tell me, you know, if it yeah. was bad, I'll, I want to fix it.
2: Yeah. Because,
5: yeah. you know, you see that they don't, they're don't—they're not they not going to come back. Mm-hmm. And I say, I'd rather hear it from them so I can fix it, so they can come back. Right, right. So uh, we always tried to, uh, I had a, I had a customer that would come in, and it would come in like three, four times a week for a long time, until one day I went and he came by himself. And one day I went up there, and I said, I said, I mean, I got a question for you. I said, why do you come here every day and <laughs> you eat the same food? Yeah. He said, Well, I'm gonna be really honest with you, I don't like Mexican food. But I love the way you guys treat me. I don't have a family or friends oh. and you guys you guys make me feel special, you know, and mm-hmm. I and I always remember that, you know. I was yeah. like,
2: Yeah
5: I think that's gonna be a good key. I'm gonna try and stay in contact with my customers and really mm-hmm. keep that personal touch, you know, and get close to them, you know, because mm-hmm. those are the people that even if you screw up one time, they're not gonna walk away. They're gonna come and tell you, "Hey, sure. you know what? I didn't like your food today. Mm-hmm. It's bad. You mm-hmm. know,
2: mm-hmm.
5: my steak was bad. You know, and it's like, whoa, oh, let me fix it. You yeah. know, so yeah. So I think that's what has really helped us. You know, that personal touch and really yeah. getting close to our customer. She was my customer. <laughs>
7: yeah, and also um, I also say that he, that he he makes sure that everything is just really good. Mm-hmm. Um, um, he was um, the owner of the restaurant in Tiffin, and my kid's and we was there like almost every day. <laughs> and when he left, it's like, uh, we totally noticed that something was different because we went there and the food was not tasting the same. It doesn't, it, it, the, the, the chicken was just like rubber. And I thought, mm. wow. I can't believe it. Why are they serving this food? It's like it's a bad service. Um, then later, I find Gabby, and I find out that, that Diego sold the restaurant. And I saw, oh my
2: god. Yes.
7: So yeah. we don't <laughs> stop there anymore. And as <laughs> <laughs> it is true. And as how Diego say, um, one of the very important things is uh, give a really good customer service. Mm-hmm. And good customer service you don't need to have just sometimes like a good cook because if you start from uh, very good ingredients,
2: mm-hmm.
7: uh, you have a really good recipe, anyone can make a really good salsa.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: Uh, and if you put love to your work and to your food, people can feel that. I always have this, the, this belief that people eat the energy and the love that you put in it. It's pretty much what is feeding you, mm-hmm. what is making you. Sometimes you just eat that kind of food that is, it's not feeding your soul. Mm-hmm. And then you just feel like, Ma, I'm, I'm hungry. What's going on? I've just eat this big hamburger and fries and I don't feel anything in my stomach. Yeah. Yeah. So it is the, as he say, um, the quality, the service, the welcoming, the family thing, the, we all Mexicans growing up like seeing, aunts and mothers and grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Usually, no, means a few families <laughs> so that makes it's more like Mexican woman's cooking around. So that is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the more important.
0: Yeah. Uh, any last thoughts from you, Diego? Or from you,
5: Miriam? <laughs> well, you know, it's just. Um, one of the things that I that I have also done, especially now that I'm in the smaller communities, I um, they have a, a farmers market there, yeah. and I and if I get all like usually during the summer, especially in the summer, I get all my produce from from the farmers market, and I pay twice as much, sometimes yeah. triple, you know, yeah. and but you know what, like I have had so many people this summer go. I, um, there's a place called Crow's Kroll, Market uh, between uh, Mount Vernon and so on. And I've been buying my tomatoes and my cucumbers and my green peppers and my jalapenos. from them, and, and people are like, "Oh my God, these tomatoes taste so different." They could tell. Yeah. They could tell. I said, "Well, it's organic." Mm-hmm. I said, "It's organic." I'm able to get it now, and uh, don't get used to it, because <laughs> <laughs> in the winter, yeah. of course, you know, you yeah. could only get it from the big companies and stuff. Sure. And, um, but, but I think you know, buying from the small towns like that and mm-hmm. buying from the uh, farmers' market, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of people come back and they've yeah. come in and they say, oh, I came here because you buy it from the farmer's market.
2: Yeah.
5: You know, and I was like, well, thank you. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Hopefully mm-hmm. I can pay for that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah,
2: so. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah. I, and you were going to say something. Mm-hmm.
7: I just, my last thing, I really want to say this. Um, the first thing I noticed when I came over here is like, oh, that is a Mexican food over here. That Try the, try the rice. And I tried, and I was like, "Oh my God, what is this thing?" And then try the chicken, and I tried every single thing. That's the same thing. And then why they put cumin in every single thing? It's like cumin is no a uh, a uh, uh, Well, of it comes in some recipes and mm-hmm. a few quantities. But here they put it in a Chinese uh, rice and it's Mexican rice.
2: Mm-hmm
7: with cumin and everything, and this Mexican food is not true. So please, if you want to do a pretty good Mexican food, take your cumin out of your shelves.
0: <laughs> okay, well, a, a good good tip. Um, so, Miriam Alarcon-Avila, thank you so much for joining us. Diego Rivera, thank you. Real pleasure to talk to both of you tonight. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is World Canvas, a production of international programs at the University of Iowa, and we invite you to watch the rebroadcast of this program on UITV or listen on Iowa Public Radio or KRUI-FM. Links to the broadcast can be found at international programs' website, international.uiowa.edu. The full World Canvas series may be seen on UITV and will be available as a downloadable podcast on iTunes. I'd like to invite you to the next program in the World Canvas series, which will be held in the Senate. Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on November 2nd, and the evening will be a very special one. We'll be presenting the International Impact Award to co founder of the International Writing Program, Hualing Nye Engel, and we'll have quite an evening planned. Uh, please join us for that. That's IWP Writing the Stories of the World on Friday, November 2nd, in the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. So I'm uh, being joined now by uh, three really great people who have helped pull this program together as we wanted to focus on the Latino Midwest, actually in advance of a symposium that will be happening here at the University of Iowa next weekend. So sitting next to me is Claire Fox, and next to her is Omar Valerio Jimenez, and you already know Santiago Vaquera Vasquez, university professors, and as I mentioned, co-organizers of this upcoming symposium, also called the Latino Midwest. Uh, And by the way, the symposium is sponsored by the Obermann Center for Advanced Studies and by International. Programs. It is the Fall Humanities Symposium. Uh, Claire Fox is the UI Associate Professor of English and Spanish and Portuguese. And uh, next to her is Omar Valerio Jimenez, UI Associate Professor of History. And his research and teaching focus is on the borderlands, Latino and immigration history. And as you know, we've already met Santiago. So I want to turn first to you, Omar, if you don't mind. I'd like to uh, ask you to sort of give us an overview of the influence Latinos have had on the Midwest. It's a long history here in the Midwest, isn't it?
8: Right.
9: One of the things that I like to, um, well, let me back up and say that when I first um, uh, decided to come to Iowa uh, six years ago, uh, some of my friends and, and colleagues in California where I was living said, um, they asked me, you know, are there Latinos in Iowa? <laughs> and I'd like to bring that up sometimes, that kind of story, because it, it, it actually um, illustrates two points, two misconceptions, and that's one that... Um, that Latinos are sort of new arrivals in in Mm -hmm. Iowa, and also that their numbers are scarce. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, Latinos aren't new arrivals. They've been arriving, um, they've been here in the the Midwest, um, traveling to the Midwest since the late 19th century um, to Iowa, uh, specifically to to work in agriculture and the railroads, um, and throughout the the Midwest to Illinois and and Michigan and so forth. and um, so, you know, one of the misconceptions that I like to sort of point out uh, in my classes is. That Latinos are not new immigrants. Um, there are new immigrants among us, mm-hmm. but there's there's people who've lived in the Midwest. There's you know there's people in the Midwest, like in places like Davenport, places like Moline, Chicago, obviously in Detroit, who have been here for generations. Mm-hmm. And so their children, uh, you know, or the the people who are, li- who, are who are living here to not today, um, are you know second, third generation, you know, mm-hmm. um, Mexicans, uh, Puerto Ricans, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. And so. Um, One of the things that I also like to explain in my classes is that, you know, Latinos were not all the same, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Not only are there class differences and regional differences, so, you know, we, we heard from people who are from Monterrey, from Chihuahua, uh, I'm from Tamaulipas, um, you know, all northern states, but but then there's people from Zacatecas, you know, from, mm-hmm. from more central regions. And there's great diversity, just not in, just in terms of how we speak, but also in terms of, you know, the kind of foods we eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of foods that, you know, Santiago and I grew up with uh, are probably different than the, the kind of foods that, you know, people maybe in the Midwest might grow up with, uh, even if they're Latino. Um, but anyway, so the other thing that, that I'd like to explain is that, you know. Even though the first Latinos in the Midwest were probably Mexican, uh, soon enough, um, you know, Puerto Ricans joined them, especially in the in the early 20th century. And today, you know, we have um, Puerto Ricans, you know, Dominicans, Central Americans, um, and so you know, there's a there's a um, a variation in terms of national origins. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's obviously you know mixing. So you know these people, these immigrants have mixed with other other Latinos um, and also with you know with Iowans uh, or with Midwesterners. Um, so um, to in general, I think that Latinos have been in the in the in the area for a very long time. And there's also been um, they've come from many different parts of the world of, of of Latin America. And some have also come from just other parts of of. Um, of the U.S. Um, one of the things that struck me about when you were talking to Eugenio and also with um, Diego is that, you know, their story is actually quite typical uh, of, you know, that they they arrived here uh, following other people, you know, so it's this sort of chain migration, right, mm-hmm. that family and friends bring other people here. Uh, and even, um, you know, even Gabriela mentioned that as well, right. Uh, the other thing that is also very common is that, you know, when scholars um, speak to recent immigrants or even you know uh, immigrants who've been here for a while they ask them why did they come to the midwest why did they come to iowa what did they why did they come to rural rural places and um immigrants many times tell them because especially if they're moving from places like california where big cities or or even you know in texas um they they mention a few things one of the things they mention is that there's a slower pace of life that they like here there's affordability and um and there, many times, are uh, lower crime rates, and this goes back to you know this is a, this isn't new. Uh, if you speak to if, you know researchers, historians who who um, who looked at uh, who ex- who sort of looked into why immigrants were moving here, migrants were moving here from Texas in the early. Um, 20th century, um, they had similar reasons um, in some cases, and, so, and sometimes they were escaping what they thought was sort of more blatant racism mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. they 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 sort of experienced in Texas. And when they came to Iowa, they said it wasn't as harsh. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. Huh. And and just to stick with that that um, question of racism overt or otherwise here in in the Midwest uh, can can you give us some historical perspective there? What what kind of reception really did these? I don't know if there were waves of uh, mm-hmm. of immigrants or uh, you know, just a family coming through perhaps a migrant worker being in an area for a period of time and then not there during the rest of the school year or whatever what what kinds of? Um, of images do iowans who are not latinos have of, of these groups of immigrants who've come over the last i don't know 50 years well i
9: think that some of the first immigrants who came here i, I one of the things i forgot to mention in my previous comments is that um, the first immigrants who arrived here from um, places like texas or mexico uh, were coming here um, as a reason to, to, to you know for work but they were actually um Labor recruiters who worked for uh, you know who were recruiting for agricultural companies or railroads who were actually going to you know Mexican border cities like Ciudad Juarez or like Laredo, Nuevo Laredo, mm-hmm. uh, and recruiting people and saying we want we want workers to come here, yeah. and so for the companies obviously they wanted them to come here they wanted they were yeah. they wanted this labor. Um, I think uh, you know early on in the late 19th century, early 20th century, I think many Iowans didn't. Um, you know, uh, necessarily interact with that many mm-hmm. Latinos, because mm-hmm. they were living, you know, close to where they worked, yeah. uh, and they weren't, they weren't that big, you know, that, the numbers weren't that large. And so, um, you know, um, there, are, you know, I think, you know, the majority of Iowans, the majority of people in the Midwest probably didn't have that many interactions yeah. with them. Um, the other thing is that many of them, especially the ones who came to work in agriculture, were seasonal workers. So they were participating in what is called circular migration. They would come here to, to, to work for a while, and then they would return either to Texas or they'd go to Idaho or they would go to other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, Many times this happened when, um, and and the, these workers were primarily men initially. Mm-hmm. But once they start bringing families, then they start um, their families start telling them, you know, or their, their wives start saying, well, you know, we we can't keep moving around all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that's when they start establishing roots. And so from agricultural work, they start you know, um, working in, for instance, in railroads, mm-hmm. and then they start working in industry, you know, industrial mm-hmm. work, um, and then they start sort of settling down. Mm-hmm. And so from, s- so, w- you know, what um, uh, historian De, uh, Dioniso Valdez mentions, he says, they were, went from being sojourners to settlers, and that happened over, you know, one, yeah. sometimes over, you know, one or two generations. Uh, but that's when you start seeing these established communities. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, and, and what percentage of uh, people living in Iowa now are Latinos
9: five uh, percent according 5%. to the 2010 census
0: yeah and that, there's been a significant rise in recent years hasn't sure there? exactly yeah. I
9: mean so from the 20, 2000 to the 20, 2010 census the percentage of Latinos in Iowa um, increased by 84 mm-hmm. percent and across 12 Midwestern states eight eight Midwestern eight of those uh, states had more than 73 percent growth mm-hmm. of uh, Latinos from the the last census to the most recent
0: one right Right, and so uh, a large number of those people have gone through the citizenship process and have become citizens, and now obviously can be voters and so on. So there are big implications in schools, in I mean, education around the state, um, um, offering uh, English English classes to students who young people who come here and aren't really um, well versed in English yet. And uh, you know, we're in a political year, the whole question of voters' rights and so on. There, there are lots of. Um, things related to various, um, populations we would consider minority populations, uh, and they're very, very critical. And, um, you know, one of the recent ones is voter ID business, and, um, the implication that some make is that, uh, these kinds of measures that have either been, um, voted in in some cases and then rejected by the courts, uh, would scare off or would perhaps limit access of, of certain populations to to the vote. Um, do we have concerns with that here in Iowa? Uh, I'll go to either one of you.
6: I don't know if Omar wants to take that. He's he's, he's more of our data person. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
9: So that's why I had a cheat sheet here. Um, um, Yes. And one of, and actually, this is a good point to sort of uh, to talk about the Latino Midwest Symposium that's Mm -hmm. coming up in about a week. Uh, One of the panels that we're going to have is a panel on immigration law uh, Mm -hmm. and and sort of the 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 aftermath of Postville, for example. Um, And two of the people who are going to be speaking are one of them is going to be is the state director of LULAC, uh, Joe Henry, and another one is. A, a, an attorney with ACLU, uh, Rita Bennett. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think I got her name right. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and um, and they're going to be speaking about a lawsuit that they filed against the Secretary of State uh, in, in Iowa um, to try to prevent uh, what they what they believe is a voter suppression mm-hmm. kind of um, you know action. Yeah. Um, and I don't know all the details, but I know that you know there's there's faculty members here at the University of Iowa who've talked mm-hmm. about you know these. Um, uh, v- voter ID kind of um, laws and how even if you're non-Latino, if your name is you know John Wilson mm-hmm. uh, on your birth on your driver's license, but on vo- you know your voter registration it's John Q Wilson, mm-hmm. then you know you're going to get run into problems. Mm-hmm. Or if you know if a common name like that, um, you know John Wilson, there might be a felon you know in the yeah. state that has that yeah. name, and so there's all sorts of issues. Yeah. But but in, in particular, Lulac and ACLU is, are taking up this issue because. Uh, LULAC in particular and ASLU believe that these kind of laws might, be, uh, might have a greater effect on Latino populations.
0: Right. 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 Well, thank you. Um, uh, Claire, can you uh, tell us just a little bit more about the, the breadth of speakers you're going to have at the symposium?
10: Oh, sure. Um, for the past 18 months, the three of us have been working together on the planning of a, an event that's going to take place here on campus at the University of Iowa next week. So beginning October 11th, Thursday, through Saturday the 13th, we're hosting a symposium called the Latino Midwest, which is really intended to showcase the depth and breadth of Latino cultures and presence here in the Midwest, in Iowa and in our neighboring states. Mm -hmm. We've got several very high profile speakers coming in, some leaders in the field of Latino studies Vicky Ruiz, for example, an historian from University of California, Irvine, who specializes in women's history and labor history, will be one of our keynotes. Jose Limon of University of Notre Dame, director of Latino studies there, and a professor in English and American studies, will be another keynote speaker. And his current research is about Latinos in Chicago Um, We also have a prominent scholar of bilingual education and sociolinguistics, Ana Celia Centella. We have performers, Lila Downs, the Mexican Um, (laughs) singer-songwriter. Junot Diaz, the prominent author who just won the MacArthur Foundation Genius Award. These are our keynotes and our prominent speakers, but we have also organized panels on a variety of issues, arts, culture, immigration, labor history, civil rights, religion. Um, and all of this will be showcased here for the three-day period starting next week. And can anyone from the public come to uh Yes, all I'm the thinking. events are free, um, open to the public, with the exception of the Downs concert, which is sponsored by Hansher, And tickets for that are available online.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we did hear a little bit about one of the writers uh, who'll be coming. Uh, well, tell us something very quickly, if you can, about about the the Latino or Chicano voice, the, the um, literary voice of some of the, the best authors these these days. Uh, who are what are some of the names we should be um, looking for if we want to read f- the best?
6: you well, writers. it's interesting that we still have to find, or we still have to see more um, Latinos coming out of the midwest. There's, there There are um groups of uh, of writers that are uh, there's a uh, a Latino uh, uh, writers collective in Kansas City, for example. There are um, groups of writers in Chicago. Um, one of the one of the writers that we're inviting um, is a Dominican writer, uh, Ray Andujar. he is he lives currently lives in Chicago. He's a performance artist. Also uh, from Kansas City from this writers collective we have uh Shanath Carrasa she's uh, a mexicana a poet um, and then of course we have um, Gino Diaz who we're all really excited about mm-hmm. and uh, and if you want to go i highly recommend that you arrive early because i'm 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 afraid that the angler's not big enough not large enough to um for for everybody um, but um, as I as I mentioned earlier, we have a there have been a number of, of prominent writers who have come through the the writers workshop, including Cisneros, mm-hmm. of course, uh, Juan Felipe Herrera, uh, the the current poet laureate of California, uh, came, came through the uh, the workshop, um, and. You know, as I said, we we we're, we're sure to see to see more. Mm-hmm. We have currently one Latino in the <laughs> workshop, Jorge, who's sitting back there. <laughs> and, but I'm sure that we're gonna we're we're going to hopefully see more.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, this went by way too fast. But thank you yes. so much, Claire Fox, and Omar Valerio Jimenez, and Santiago vasquez thank, thank you, you so thank much. You. Appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, So I'm going to invite our next group of guests up here. And uh, you'll recognize one of these people, Gabriela Rivera, is going to join us again, along with Andrew Brannan and Hector Ibarra. Please just sit wherever you like, Hector. Uh, As you know, uh, Gabriela uh, works here at the University of Iowa, and we've heard from her uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, Just next to me here is Hector Ibarra. And um, Mr. Ibarra is the son of migrant workers. He's a retired West Branch science teacher, recently recognized by the Obama administration for his contributions to science education in the state and the country. He's a member of the National Assessment Governing Board, which is responsible for setting policy for our nation's report card. Uh, And we'll be going to Hector in in just a moment. Andrew Brannan is at the far end there. Hi, thank you for coming. Uh, He's currently a doctoral student in social studies education at the University of Iowa. Andrew taught high school social studies in Washington, Iowa, for seven years. And during that time, he created and taught a Latin American history course and was a National Social Studies Teacher of the Year nominee during 2011 and 12. And so uh, please welcome all of these guests. Um, um, I Perhaps I'll go first to you, Andrew, at, at the uh, far end here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this course you started in uh, Latin American history?
8: Uh, definitely. Um Uh, The course sort of came about uh, really in in a sort of reflection of my education uh, here in Iowa. I came from Costa Rica at a very young age and and grew up in a really small town that most people don't know of, uh, of Liska, Iowa in Southwest Iowa. And opportunities to sort of study my history really didn't exist. And um, as a teacher, one of the things that you really try to do is you try to create connections between the courses and the students themselves. And as I taught in Washington, Iowa, we had a rising number of Latino students, uh, primarily Mexican students, who were really missing that opportunity to connect their own sort of story to the topics that were being taught. And we had a great guidance counselor uh, by the name of Greg Yoder who approached me uh, in, in regards to creating this, this course uh, because of my background in, in history and American Indian Native Studies and, and my background as a Latino. So. Um, uh, the, the course sort of uh, revolved around the things that I, that I was comfortable with primarily being Indian studies, uh, pre-Columbian Mesoamerica. So it, it was really three to four sort of units in, in a nine-week span. Uh, we examined um, sort of the, the big three indigenous groups in, in the Americas that have contact with uh, European uh, powers in Central and South America, the Maya, the Aztec, and the Inca. But we also looked at some of the smaller groups that, that are sometimes ignored, the Chavin and uh, Paracas groups, Moche. Um, Tosh Collins and, and groups like that. And I really wanted to provide the, the students with a chance to, to look at that history um, as, as much from an indigenous point of view as possible. So we, we would read things like the Popol Vuh. Uh, we read at least the first two chapters of the Popol Vuh to get an understanding of sort of Mayan history. Um, we looked at uh, sort of art history uh, with three main groups, looking at the Temple Mayor, uh, Coricancha for the Inca, um, Uh, the numerous sort of temples that you find in in Mayan civilizations and and then we sort of progressed into um, contact and colonialism Uh, We read Bernal Diaz's accounts and Columbus's letters back to Spain um, the Pizarro brothers in South America and uh, I was really trying to give them a chance to see you know sort of how maybe events in in modern-day Latin America reflected events in colonial Latin America. And we sort of, com- we would culminate with uh, uh, independence movements in South America and Central America. Uh, they had a chance to read uh, some poetry, Pablo Neruda's uh, The Dictators. Uh, they read a great book called The Underdogs by Mariano Suela. And um, on Fridays I would have them bring in current events relating to Latin America as much as possible. Um, whether it was a newspaper article that they found in, in maybe Buenos Aires or uh, even stuff that was going on in Europe and uh, initially when the class began it was um, a real mix of, of, of students um, I, I really wanted to try and get as many Mexican students as possible into the class and we did succeed in that we had a, we had a strong number of Mexican students uh, but as the class were sort of progressed it really it did become a mix of, of Anglo students Mexican students and um, the response was was, really uh, sort of great to see. Um, initially they, the students did balk a little bit at the amount of reading that they had to do. Uh, I, I did want to make the class sort of a, you know, a college prep course so they did have to read quite a bit. But um, they started to really associate with the readings and relate mm-hmm. to the readings and they would go home and, and talk to their parents or their grandparents and uh, about some of the stories and, 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 and they could relate to that as well. I would try to put uh, as much things as possible in English and Spanish Mm -hmm. for the students. Uh, Some of them were not strong English speakers or writers. Um, And and by the time the the class sort of ended, uh, it's no longer taught now that that I don't teach there anymore. But um, the last year that I taught it, uh, uh, the last term, it was taught two times a day (laughs) to classes of anywhere from 26 to 30 students. And, uh, And I would do an end of the term assessment. And students would write comments where they would say, "Hey, this was a real chance for me to learn about my past," hmm. and in a lot of ways, it was a chance for me to learn about my past as well, yeah. as I went through that class. and hmm. And uh, the students would tell me things that they knew that they had learned from from their parents or from their family hmm. members, and we were able to sort of bring that into the curriculum itself. So it was it was a really rewarding class to be a part
0: wow. of. Oh, thanks for sharing that. I'm sorry to hear that the class isn't currently being offered, but perhaps that'll change one day. I hope so. Yeah, yeah, Andrew Brennan, thank you. Uh, I think I'll go next to Hector Ibarra, and uh, i like to hear a little bit about your teaching experience and uh, your life as an educator.
11: Uh, thank you for the opportunity to present and uh, to give you experiences, to, or to give you a viewpoint from from myself as a student, from myself as, as a teacher of, of 37 years experience, and also uh, from the point of view from the National Assessment Governing Board that I serve on. Uh, I will have to refer to some of my notes because I have percentages or numbers and I want to make sure that I have these right or correct. But I won't uh, bore you with uh, stuff that is way too much. If any of you want to uh, look at uh, the information uh, that's on the internet, you can access it by nces.ed.gov backslash card backslash states. And it's really no secret that uh, American students are doing poorly on national and international tests. Uh, There are many people that don't believe this is true. Uh, There are teachers and administrators who do not believe this is true, but there are also many people that do believe there is a crisis at at hand. Um, In 1983, uh, the report A Nation at Risk came out, and really things haven't changed since that time. Uh, In Iowa, roughly 81.5% of the students are white, 8.5% are Hispanic, and 4.3% are students that take English uh, proficiency classes. Uh, We all know that the gap exists between Hispanics and whites, and it is a significant gap. Um, When you look at the the NAEP test results that are out there, they test uh, on a cycle between math, reading, science, and writing, and on all those tests, Hispanic students do significantly not as good as, as white students. And so the key is to try to figure out how can we improve these, the, the teaching that exists. Some examples on this, on the 2011 Iowa uh, test, there was an 18 point difference between Hispanics and whites, but in 2009, the difference was 27 points. So there's a 9% growth that has occurred in, in those two years. In math, uh, Hispanics scored 19% difference between whites and and Hispanics. The national average was 23 points. And I didn't record down what the Iowa average was four or five years back. The same way with the national uh, 2011 writing report. In that, they only have uh, the information for 12th grade and this information is only at a national level. And the national level for uh, 12th grade was 25 points and uh, 22 point difference for uh, the fourth for the eighth grade level, and this is between uh, Hispanics again and in in, um, and the whites. Uh, another thing that is very concerning is the dropout rate in Iowa City it was reported in uh, 2011 in a report to the Iowa City Board that 15 percent uh, of the students that dropped out were Hispanic. Statewide, the percentage was 24.8%, and it, but in 2009, the percent was 31.2%. So there there has been a growth in in those areas. Now one knows that the graduation rate is one of the big indicators of how successful schools are and how students are also. Um, But improvement has also been seen in the college graduation rates of um, Hispanics in Iowa. Uh, 52 percent of Hispanics graduate from Iowa where 66 percent of whites graduate in the state of Iowa. So that what it tells you is that if we get Hispanics in they're they're being successful. And that's a a really important aspect Uh, 50 years ago i experienced many of the same challenges uh, that hispanics experience right now the scenario was different the challenges were basically the same language barrier um, low income living in communities where your your models were other hispanics speaking only spanish never really english unless i went to class or when i went to class Uh, my parents moved to Clear Lake, Iowa. When I was uh, five and a half years old, and they came, they moved from Mexico to Texas, and then they moved to to Iowa to Clear Lake. and, the, and my parents were migrant workers for about a year and a half. They decided to settle in, in Clear Lake. Uh, thank goodness for because of my mother, who was was very determined that we were going to be settled and not moving from from field to field. I myself, uh, as a child, worked in the field, so I know that's what that what that is like and the experience that it brought. Uh, in my case, my salvation was my fourth grade teacher. I hadn't really learned very much English the first four f- grades, but there was, there was this, this teacher, Myrtle Olson, who was very interested in my well-being, uh, recognized something, whatever it might have been, and uh, took the time to, to uh, spend time with me after school. And because of that, I, I learned to value the, the need to get a good education. I was blessed to have many, many teachers that uh, were, that looked out for me, they cared about me, and I I could see that, I could sense that. And when you have a caring teacher, one of the things that you have is that you want to work harder. You don't wanna fail, you want these, you wanna excel at what you do. And so in my case, that was one of the things that was really, really good. Now, school for me, I will say, was a struggle, in seventh grade and below, my percentages on the ITBS tests were 35% and below. Uh, by eighth grade, I finally cracked the 50% rate, and those 50% rates were basically in science and mathematics, which were above 65%. Uh, but my reading scores and my vocabulary scores were consistently below 40% and below uh, 20% all the way through high school. Now, one might say, well, you know, how, how did you make it through if you're reading and you're, you're um, writing skills were so poor. Well, the one thing I could always do was I, I excelled in, in my study habits. I could outwork most students in memorizing what I had to do, and I had this expectation I did not want to live the life that my parents were were in a way forced to live because of of moving from Mexico and being middle class and live, moving to the uh, United States and, and into a life of, of low income, maybe not poverty, but in today's uh, means it, it was poverty. So the thing is, in my message, in, in terms of, of when I look at what's going on in schools, Hispanics, um, a, as any student, can do well. But the biggest thing is that they need to have this desire to excel. They need to believe in themselves. And, and there are just so many obstacles out there that, that just bring them in and, and bring them downward if they get into this cycle that, that, they can't get, that their hole is so deep that they cannot get out of. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Hector Ibarra. and uh, You're welcome. Yeah, so let's turn it back to you, Gabriella, And you work with students who are interested in coming to college and, and also with students in the West Liberty School system. So tell us a little bit about your work there.
4: Yeah, um, that is correct. And I, I, do, I, I feel so um, grateful to be sitting right next to two teachers because uh, I think that teachers are so important to Latino male teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And I, I think that um, exactly that role models are needed um, in this state. Um, there's so many connections I'm making right now, going through my brain as far as you know, the path to college from K to 12, and then once they get here. Um, and I do travel a little bit to West Liberty, and I used to more when I was an admissions counselor, not so much more now. Cause my, my role now uh, in my office, we are a retention office. So just like Mr. Ibarrá say, or my, my biggest job now is to make sure a student once he or she arrive here is that he or she graduates from the university, mm-hmm. and everything that happens uh, with the environment mm-hmm. and uh, working with all the professors and the university mm-hmm. setting is very important as well. Uh, you know uh, what Professor Santiago Baquera was saying. We have a lot of bilingual, bicultural students coming to this university. Um, New immigrants, uh, first-generation Latino students who are so um, eager to share their own experience. A class on ethnic studies in high school is such a great idea. The fact that we can do it in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. in other states you can't. Uh Um, I wish there were more. Classes that are being taught, like the one that uh, teacher Andrew did. Mm -hmm. Andrew, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because um, once the students get here, they want to share so much about their Mm -hmm. own experiences. And uh, in classes like uh, Chicano Studies classes, and I know Professor Rivas will be up here in a minute, too, but I'm always telling the students learn more about your own uh, identity Mm -hmm. because that's really what. Makes them graduate. Yeah. Uh, the expectations of knowing that their parents work really hard, and they, you, know, you know they want it. We all want to be better than yeah. our parents. But of course, uh, we have such a strong family values yeah. and a high expectations. Nice environment. Knowing that there's a supportive system here at the University of mm-hmm. uh, faculties and staff administrators that care about a student's experience is yeah. very important. So a caring person is probably the most important. Mm-hmm. Part um, the fact that students do speak Spanish um, at home. <laughs> I see a lot of ACT scores that are troublesome with the with you know the ACT being such a big factor in the admissions process into a university. Um, but if a student can overcome all, all those things and, mm-hmm. and really work on their English writing and speaking skills, mm-hmm. I know they they can do so much and. I'm so excited to hear a professor Anacelia Santella talking about bilingualism and mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what does that mean uh, for mm-hmm. someone coming to a university that has so much to offer but can't exactly put it on a piece of paper. You know, or you know, they, Sometimes the students don't come with a high level of uh, academic English that mm-hmm. is expected, mm-hmm. but they can so write beautifully and speak so beautifully mm-hmm. in both languages. Right, you know, but how can you translate that all that into grades and to mm-hmm. uh, numbers like the ones that
0: yeah
4: we just heard? Yeah, <laughs> that's the that's the problem. That it also needs to be you know put in perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to be valued as a culture,
2: mm-hmm.
4: um, as, as people that can do so much. Not just on numbers, but we right. have a lot to offer, and that's what I tell a lot of the students that come through my office. You know. Uh, the fact that your ACT score is not this, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that you cannot do the work. You know, yes, you can do it, take a class with Professor Valerio Jimenez, a class. Because mm-hmm. they, they often feel so comfortable, feel yeah. so nurtured being in these classes. Mm-hmm. They can be like, they can share so much about who they are. And once they can overcome that, then they can do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So again, my office does does mostly do retention work. Um, I do co-direct the West Liberty Enrichment Program Mm -hmm. with Professor Caroline Colvin, Mm -hmm. and we mentor students here at the University of Iowa, uh, formerly from West Liberty, um, who are entering the university through graduation. And we have about 40 students right now in our group, and we meet with them uh, monthly. But it's also a strong partnership with the school district, so we have anywhere from the superintendent, Steve Hansen, uh, to the high school counselor, to the principal, to uh, a really nice group of teachers who really believe that these students are gonna succeed. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen um, the number of students from West Liberty enrolling at the University of Iowa increase, and actually the students who graduate, uh, because it's it's such a close community, Mm -hmm. uh, 15 miles away from Iowa City. But, yeah, our commitment is to make sure that they succeed once they're here. It's mm-hmm. easy for a student to get in, but to graduate and make sure, you know, and also working with the parents to make sure the yeah. parents understand what that experience is like. Mm-hmm. Some, experience, uh, some parents um, don't have a college education. Mm-hmm. Most of these kids are first generation. So, working with the parents very closely to help them understand what the experience is like. So, we have taken parents to a campus visit here mm-hmm. and uh, you know, just talk with them about what it means and having them sit in a classroom, taking them to the library, having a professor talk with them, mm-hmm. making feel them good about this is a good place for their son or daughter to be. Mm-hmm.
0: And also helping them figure out how to get past some of the financial hurdles, which affect all students these days, but I'm sure a concern also for, for these parents who may have first-generation college applicants. Yeah,
4: we do see a lot of Latino students um, who have... Great scholarships, they come very well prepared, but yeah, financially they may not be able to afford the, their college mm-hmm. education, so they're working as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of students do work,
2: mm-hmm. and
4: we just have to make sure they can balance the working mm-hmm. schedule with the academic schedule.
2: Yeah.
4: And mental health too.
8: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts from you, Andrew, or, or Hector?
8: I, I think, you know, what you said about making a classroom comfortable is, is really, really key. Mm-hmm. Um, A lot of my students said, you know, this is the only class that I wanted to come to today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And getting them into the classroom and and making them feel comfortable is a huge step towards getting the education that they need and and giving them that ability to make the next step. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, thank you.
11: I would say the the challenge is to convince uh, Hispanic students that it's imperative that they take hold of their own learning. It's really important. It doesn't matter uh, who the teachers are, how good or how bad the school is. If they don't take hold of what's going on, if they don't engage themselves in wanting to make a difference in their lives, mm-hmm. then they're going to be in the same life cycle that their parents are in.
0: Yeah. Wow. Thank you so very much, Gabriela Rivera, Hector Ibarra, and Andrew Br- Andrew Brannon. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And so now I'd like to invite our last group of guests up, Jose Ortuña, uh, Nino Ortiz, and Tlaloc Rivas. Uh, in this last segment, we're going to take a look at emerging research in Latino studies uh, and on the Latino Midwest that's coming from the UI. Uh, at the far end is Jose Orduña, a graduate student in the Nonfiction Writing Program at the University of Iowa. Nice to have you here, Jose. Thank you. Thank you very uh, much. currently working on a long-form project that focuses on immigration policy, his personal naturalization experience which took place at the Herbert Hoover Museum and Library in West Branch this summer, and um, some fieldwork done in the Sonoran Desert in Arizona, so we'll look forward to hearing more about that. And uh, next to him is Nina Ortiz, a doctoral candidate in anthropology doing fieldwork in Columbus Junction here in Iowa. Uh, Nina was born and raised in rural Iowa daughter of public school teachers. Her paternal grandparents were migrant workers from Mexico. Both sets of grandparents worked blue-collar jobs in rural Iowa. Nina speaks Spanish but did not grow up bilingual. Uh, Her undergraduate degree is in international studies in Spanish from Central College and she has a master's degree in Spanish as well as anthropology from the UI. So thank you for being with us, Nina. And next to me is Tlaloc Rivas. Uh, (laughs) And and you'll, you'll have to say your name beautifully for me well, well, uh, when I when you start talking, but uh, he's a new faculty member in theater arts here at the University of Iowa, the uh, first Chicano and the fourth Latino ever to teach stage directing at a U.S. university undergrad and graduate program. Uh, you have directed plays all over the country, uh, you have a commitment to playwrights and new play development, and I want to hear more about your work uh, generally in theater and then also here at the university, so thanks for being with us. Uh, Yeah. So, Jose, let me turn first to you and ask you to tell us a little bit about the research you're doing and also about your personal experience in naturalization.
12: Um, Yes. So, uh, I'm working on my MFA thesis, um, and it follows uh, sort of a short um, span of time Mm -hmm. in which uh, I was naturalized here in Iowa at the, uh, like you said, the Herbert Hoover Library. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was a really interesting... Uh, experience, um, and it also follows uh, the sort of aftermath of uh, becoming a citizen, uh, in which I went to the Sonoran Desert uh, to <clears throat> volunteer with uh, several groups, uh, do some some uh, field work and, and research uh, about uh, the the border as a, a threshold. I'm really interested in um, examining. Uh, the way in which the border acts as a threshold that uh, inscribes uh, people. Um, I see it as a certain uh, extension of the border uh, beyond the physical space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've felt uh, that throughout my life. I've seen it in uh, those I love and care about. Um, my parents are right there. Oh, uh hello, <laughs> welcome. Hi, Mom and Dad. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm really uh, interested in, in learning more about that, uh, and also rendering, uh, rendering a, a prolonged um, work that sort of addresses the ways in which those, those administrative uh, means uh, intervene in people's lives in, um, in what I perceive to be violent, aggressive ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, you mentioned in an email you sent to me that there's a certain survivor's guilt. Uh, yeah. Can you tell me about that?
12: Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a certain feeling. Um, when I started my project, I thought it was just going to follow the sort of steps uh, and it was going to culminate with my uh, ceremony in which I'm naturalized. Um, but then I, I felt um, I felt tethered in a way to uh, going to the actual Sonoran Desert, which is uh Through various policies, has been made a bottleneck uh, for migration recently. So, I um, I just felt really compelled to go there, and I didn't at first. I didn't really know why, but I started to sort of examine that, and uh, it 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 sort of yeah, it sort of feels like a a survivor's guilt in a way. Um, I didn't have to go through that desert, but there's there's something about it that that uh, involves me, Mm -hmm. Um, and it was also just. uh, It was really also just the result of being an American citizen. It it was uh, uh, a removal of a certain fear that I had had. Um, If I uh, was caught committing any sort of felony, uh, certain misdemeanors, uh, different crimes of moral turpitude, uh, I could have been uh, deported. So uh, the the removal of of that fear was something that was very um, uh, freeing in a way uh, that I felt like I could go down to the desert and uh, do my research mm-hmm. uh, unencumbered, um, you know, bump up against border mm-hmm. patrol and uh, and not really have to fear mm-hmm. uh, that as yeah. much.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, thank you. Uh, so that's Jose Orduña and uh, Nina. Let me go to you now and ask you a little bit about um, the work you're doing. Uh, you had mentioned you might like to talk about the diversity of Latino experiences here in the Midwest.
13: Yeah, um, Omar um, already kind of mentioned that there is this great diversity of experience of being Latino in Iowa, and I have to say part of what interested me about working in Columbus Junction was that I knew that my experience of being Latino was very different from the experience of being Latino that most people living there, most Latinos living there had had, Um, because I didn't grow up speaking Spanish, and they did... I didn't grow up having to worry about my legal status, they did, mm-hmm. um, and so I was really interested to see how they experienced Iowa and not just how Iowa experienced them, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I came to discover that um, think celebrating events like quinceañeras, um, celebrating different kinds of familial celebrations that... Um, Iowans are becoming more Latino <laughs> as some Latinos are becoming more Iowan. So my experience of being an Iowa Latino was that in my high school, we had a 100% Latino graduation rate because it was me and my sister. <laughs> and some of the students who go to school today in West Liberty or in Columbus Junction, they don't experience things quite the same way that I did. So I was looking at it from both an inside and an outside Mm -hmm. perspective. And that's really sort of brought a lot to the project and um, personally to my life to learn about these different kind of experiences of Mm -hmm. being Latino. Hmm.
0: Well, that leads us, I think, pretty naturally uh, into a conversation with you, Talaloc. You've just begun to work here at the University of Iowa, and uh, we thought we might talk a little bit about what it's like to be an academic, a Latino academic, and and working here in theater.
14: What's it like to be (laughs) Latino academic, that's really interesting. Um, um, well, this is my eighth week in Iowa, so it's really exciting to be a citizen of Iowa so I can vote in this state. Um, you know, my my particular uh, background and experience and research interests uh, involve three very specific things. One is uh, the development and the... Um, promotion of new Latino writing for the stage and for the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I, there is an amazing amount of incredible work that's being done on our stages across the country. Christopher Diaz was a Pulitzer finalist for The Elaborate Entrance of Chad Deity. Chiara Alegria Udes just won the Pulitzer Prize for her play uh, Water by the Spoonful. Octavio Solis writes from his experience from the, in the Southwest. Uh, Tanya Saracho writes from her Mexican experience and also from uh, her um, immigration experience in Chicago. So um, many of these um, writers are good friends of mine uh, from my time in New York uh, and also in California. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, it's my sort of uh, my charge as a, as a director and a and a person who works in development a new plays mm-hmm. to, to work with these writers and to, to promote their work mm-hmm. as much as I can, not only nationally uh, on our stages, but also mm-hmm. in the classroom, mm-hmm. um, which uh, is why I'm here in a lot of ways. It's to, uh, I saw that the opportunity to, to teach at the University of Iowa was really exciting and that there was a, mm-hmm. a growing sense of, uh, of, a, of, a new, of a different type of cultural voice to be introduced to the theater mm-hmm. department. Uh, And this is why I'm here. Mm -hmm. Um, Much of that is also related to the fact that um, I grew up uh, in a life of political activism. Mm -hmm. I am a proud Chicano. I grew up within the Chicano movement through my father uh, and through many of the artists that that he was friends with in Southern California. Um, I started a theater company based on a political action in California, Proposition 187. And my protest for that was to stage a theater festival of New York. Um, And that has continued on throughout my life. Um, That has also intersected with my interest in um, creating theater by and for community, um, whether that be a multicultural community, whether it's an African American, Latino American, Asian American. Uh, Most recently, I developed a, a play that was um, an adaptation of The Tempest, and we set it in the predominantly Latino neighborhood in St. Louis called Cherokee Street. Um, I lived in St. Louis for two years before coming here, and that was my very first experience living in the Midwest. And what was interesting is that uh, before I arrived, I wasn't sure if I would find any Latino community <laughs> in St. Louis, but uh, remarkably, um, I started asking around, and. They kept telling me to go to Cherokee Street. And <laughs> um, what was remarkable is that in my conversations with the residents there, um, many people had arrived there by accident. Um, they had arrived to St. Louis um, from various parts of the Midwest because that was where the immigration court was. And they were waiting for their case or their trial to come up. Mm-hmm. And so they, because of the backlog, so many of them were waiting for months, and they just decided, "Well, I'm just going to stay here and work." <laughs> and and eventually, they started to save their money, started their own businesses, uh-huh. started families, uh-huh. their children started to uh-huh. go to school, uh-huh. and you have this really remarkable, sort of uh, incredible, uh, incredibly small but very tight knit community uh-huh. uh, in St. Louis. But that also looks sort of reflective of, of many other communities in the Midwest. So. Um, it's been a really exciting culture change shift mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting to know uh, people here, and, and I'm meeting people for the first time here, which is really exciting. <laughs> um, but uh, I look forward to to to, to um, continue that kind of work mm-hmm. here, and mm-hmm. uh, and to also start to um, what I can what I call the to update the Latino narrative in the United States. Mm-hmm which is um, uh, in reclaiming that not only through literature but through arts and through music and through yeah. dance. Um, uh, I'm starting a, a website, I'm the editor of the website is called Cafe Onda, which is part of, uh, of a national organization called the Latino Theater Commons, which uh, gathers together many of our prolific uh, theater artists from across the country to, to really start to take control of the narrative, to, to tell our stories mm-hmm. in our own way and to really uh, empower many other of our next generation coming up to tell their stories as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, great. Well, so we're we're looking forward to good things here with you at the University of Iowa. Um, what what are the courses you're teaching this fall?
14: Um, well, right now I'm teaching the the directing courses in uh, both the uh, undergraduate and graduate levels. Yeah. Uh, at some point, I'll be you know developing courses in in multicultural theater, in um, Um, civic engagement Mm -hmm. for our students and also devised work so it will be an opportunity for students to create their own work Mm -hmm. based on anything whether it's through their own stories whether it's through uh, you know Mm -hmm. maybe something that he wrote (laughs) or uh, you know it can come Mm -hmm. from anywhere Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it empowers students to to become their own storytellers in a way and to give them the tools to do that
0: well, Nina, as an anthropologist, I guess you're listening to people's stories too, aren't you?
13: <laughs> I am. Yeah. And I've heard quite a lot of them. And you mentioned you know, that one of the goals is to empower people. And um, one of the things that I've done as part of my research is teach um, adult English and bilingual um, GED classes to um, people in Columbus Junction. And so I've gotten to hear a lot of different stories through <laughs> that experience. Mm-hmm. But um, I think part of the empowering people and part of moving those projects forward of higher graduation rates and and more involved communities and more integrated communities is also sort of being able, Latinos people themselves, ourselves, being able to counter this narrative that being Latino or speaking Spanish is some kind of deficit. I've had people tell me things like, oh, you know, this kid or this person, um, they don't have language. You know, they came here and they didn't have language. <laughs> they, they did have language, it just wasn't the one that you speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so sort of countering those narratives and, and making it clear that, that we know that Native language literacy, in whatever language it is, helps improve literacy in English or in whatever language that you're trying to learn Mm -hmm. and instead of just saying yes it's great you already speak Spanish don't worry about that now focus on English sort of bringing that previous knowledge along as equally important and as contributing to further education is an empowering stance Mm -hmm. that we can use not only in lower levels of education but all the way through adulthood when students come to my class Mm -hmm. excuse me my class and In my adult English class, I have a range, again to the variety of Latinos, I had last year in a group of about 12 to 15 adult English learners, I had everybody from a guy who was learning the alphabet to a woman who had a degree in industrial engineering in Mexico, and they were all yeah. in my English class yeah, <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. So we had a sort of rural, one-room schoolhouse, bilingual, transnational kind of class. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Terrific, yeah. Well, so Jose, we'll wrap up with you. Um, the writing that you're doing in your nonfiction yes. career. Uh, where do you expect that to head? Is it gonna be about sort of personal reflections on the things you see, or uh, what kind of writing do you think you are uh, aiming for?
12: I think, um, I think that a lot of people uh, do a sort of personal uh, story really, really well, and uh, they can probably do it a lot better than I can. Um, my sort of, my sort of uh, writing is, I guess, kind of an auto-ethnographic literary essay, if that's a thing, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'm not a very sentimental person. Um, I'm sort of uh, more scornful and uh, full of contempt. And I, think <laughs> I think that translates into an auto-ethnographic uh, literary essay, I, I, yeah. I guess, that's that's my voice. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, great, it's so wonderful to have you all here, Talos Lothok uh, Rivas and Nina Ortiz.
6: It again?
0: Tlaloc, Rivas. Tlaloc Rivas. Sí. Thank you, sir. And Nina Ortiz and Jose Orduña. Uh, thanks to these guests. And I want to say thank you to all of you for coming to our program tonight or for watching it, listening to it. Um, this is World Canvas, presented by International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. I'm really happy to have so many of you here. And all the wonderful people who've joined us tonight have learned a lot. Uh, I want to say thank you to our production partners, UITV, uh, UI TV, UI Pentecost Museums, KRUI and Information Technology Services. Uh, this program will be broadcast on cable services around the state and on Iowa Public Radio and KRUI-FM. And free listening anywhere you are can be found on the Public Radio Exchange or on our iTunes podcast. Uh, Reminder, our next program is November 2nd at 5 o'clock in the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. Uh, And the program is IWP, Writing the Stories of the World. Uh, Thanks to my colleagues in international programs Caitlin McBride, Amy Green, Connie Shea, Shana Ole, and Christopher Clough, and to the UIT technical team which makes our broadcast possible. So that's it for this edition of World Canvas. Thanks to all of you and we'll see you next time.